So growing up, today's guest, Trevor Hall, he was kind of like a local surf kid, you know, surfing in the summer, skateboarding. That was the culture he was around. He also really dug music. He was exposed to it from the earliest age. His dad is a drummer and had always done that on the side and various bands and a massive music collection. So Trevor was always kind of around music and he loved music and he played music, but he never thought it would be his career. You know, like he was on a different path until he started playing and through a series of coincidences and kind of random introductions, he found himself playing shows in LA and going to music school. This profoundly changed the direction of his life, but that wasn't the first change. There were then a series of sort of fortunate and unfortunate incidences that took him from LA to India, back to LA, and then traveling all around the country and the world, developing his voice, signing with a major record label, then having that implode, and then really kind of taking time and saying, this is who I am. This is who I need to be. This is my voice, my gift. This is how I want to be in the world. That journey, that really moving journey and commitment to essence and voice and craft is where we sort of dive into in this week's conversation. Really excited to share it with you. And be sure to listen to the end because Trevor brought his guitar along with him and we get a little uh, mini studio concert with him at the very end. You'll be really, really moved as I was literally sitting across from him as he closed his eyes, pulled out his guitar, and just really shared something beautiful. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting-edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by your music and also just your story. It's like you've lived these really distinct mm-hmm. stages of life that have brought you to this point of being a musician and really defining the way that you want to be a musician mm-hmm. uh, and a creator. So you grew up, from what I know, down in Hilton Head, right? South yeah. Carolina. Yeah, tourist-like right. island. I mean, if you like golf, that's like yeah. Mecca. Yeah. Yeah. Not my place. Yeah, I know. Not my place either, but... <laughs> It was a really amazing place to grow up, though, because it's just so incredibly beautiful. Mm. Small town, small community. You know, you know everybody. Yeah. So were you a water kid then? Such a surfer. Yeah. You know, boating all the time. Like, it's just kind of the culture there. And it's just an amazingly gorgeous place. So I just spent a lot of time outside. Mm. And yeah, my parents still live there. I mean, we get back there every once in a while. You know, growing up, you know, you're you kind of rebel against the place you grow up. Yeah, you know, like, always. <laughs> yeah, it's like the common story. 
And then now when I go back, I'm just like, oh my God, this place is so gorgeous. You know, yeah. I've appreciated it so much more, I think. You right. Know, I now. think it's like similar in the, the Hamptons. I mean, we're in New York City. Right. So the East End of Long Island, for those who don't know, is sort of legendary beaches and towns right. called the Hamptons, but it's also astonishing wealth and, yeah. you know, society and celebrity. But there is very much sort of, you know, the townies. Right. And then, you know, like the people who summer there. Absolutely. And usually there's a lot of tension there. I remember yeah. when I got was in college, I used to work just painting houses, like kicking around painting houses out right. there. So I had no money. I was like barefoot and ripped up shorts all the right. time. So I got like to experience a little bit of that tension. I have to imagine it was like similar there because it's kind of a similar environment. Yeah. I mean, in Hilton Head too, I mean, it's, you know, the summer is just mad. Yeah. I mean, it's just like you can't even like... The traffic is insane because it's it's an island. I mean, there's only right. one road in, one road out. You know, it's kind of like the Hamptons too. You know, it's, right. it's kind of only one way to get over there. But it's just something that you, I think, as like resident, as we are like residents of the island, it's just something that you bear. I mean, we usually left during the summer. Mm. Um, my parents were really good about getting me out and exposing me to different cultures and not, you know having me grow up thinking like this is life mm. you know tennis and golf and country yeah. clubs and <laughs> but i mean for what i know your dad because your dad was a musician also right yeah he's a musician and he's a drummer right he still plays i mean he plays in church there on sundays and he has like his weekly jazz gig nice and he does a lot of other stuff with this band there so it was a unique upbringing you know like my parents were very um liberal very because it is the South, you know, and I went to a prep school and it's kind of like, you know, this is what you do and you're going to go to college, preferably in the South, and you're going to be, you know, you got to wear your polo shirt and your khakis and your loafers. And I was just like, not about that. And my parents were so liberal, you know, I knew a lot of families where their parents were just so strict. Yeah. And so how did your folks end up down there then? Well, they were actually from up here. They're from the New York area, and my mom was, they're both tennis pros, right? <laughs> yeah, and my mom was working. So it's like, they, I'm like, it sounds like they're very much like split personalities. Yeah, it's so funny, because <laughs> like, they like, what was my, dad was working for the US Open. Okay. And my mom was working for like Sports Illustrated, and, and right. they met at the US Open, because my mom was like going to pick up tickets for like her clients right. or whatever. Which for those not in the tennis world, the US Open is like one of the, the big four yeah. tournaments. And it happens like in New York. Yeah, yeah. In Flushing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But my dad had been coming down to Hilton Head since like the 70s. Ah, okay. So he was kind of like a little bit of a hippie, you know. Yeah. And at that time in the 70s, Hilton Head was like this incredibly undiscovered place. There was like one stoplight. There was no paved roads and it was just kind of a, his thing. Like, I think he always had it in his mind. Like, this is where I want to raise a family. And, mm. and eventually he brought my mom down there and said, you got to come see this place. And my mom fell in love with that. And then Stan Smith who's a really famous yeah. tennis player. is my dad's really good friend. And he's Stan Smith started a tennis like academy down there. Uh. And he asked my dad to, Start it with them. Got and it. that was kind of the thing that sealed the deal. Right, right. For it's them. like, yeah. Yeah. And back then, also, I mean, from what I know, so a friend of mine, a guy named Drew Brophy, who lives out in Southern California now, grew up, I think, right around there also, was a hardcore surfer and then has become a really well known surf artist now. Oh, And wow. does these incredible, incredible works of art. And he's about my age. And I think it's because it, from what, the way he described it, it was just like massive laid back surf culture it was kind of the dominant culture. Yeah, when he was growing it up. was just, I mean, especially back then, yeah. it was extremely, it was like very bohemian vibe. And my dad, you know, he kind of like when you talk to him, kind of like reminiscing, oh, those days, if you would have seen it in those days, it was like very chill, because now it's quite built up. Yeah. and It's a destination spot. But there's still a little bit of that, you know, in the certain sections. And that's the part I think that I, as a kid growing up, really tapped into, mm. you know, was this one stretch of beach there called North Forest Beach where all the surfers would hang out. And at that time, there was no paved roads. And it just had this really cool islandy feel that was just kind of my 
the thing that I plugged into there. Mm. You know, I didn't plug so much into the golf, you know, or the tennis or like the country club, uh. club thing. You know, I plugged into that kind of. So you were like like the the next generation of counterculture, like the small remaining slivers, so. the piece that yeah. you latched onto. You're like yeah, this. We, I had like my like six friends, yeah. and we were kind of known, you know, at our schools. Like, oh, those are the surfer kids, you know? skateboard kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, but it was really beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. So it sounds like through your dad, was that really sort of like your early exposure to music and really vibing with it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad. He's more of a rock star than I am, really. Mm. You know, he loves the whole culture and shows. And when he comes on tour with us, he's just like, he eats it up. But he, you know, there was instruments all over the house. Mm. He had a really massive, like, record collection, CD collection. And as a kid, like, that was just kind of my wonder world, you know. Like, I would, like, scroll through and, like, pick out a vinyl or something that looked cool. And I'd put it on the the system and like all right so top three playlist when you were a kid like from dad's collection oh my god from my dad's collection definitely the doobie brothers yeah the almond brothers that type of music and then and then i liked like earth wind and fire because my right. dad was really into jazz so like a little like r&b and yeah. southern rock <laughs> yeah it was so funny and then like who else was like Oh my God, like I remember like listening to like Simply Red. You oh, yeah, remember yeah. them? Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, so I was like into that. And that was what was so cool about my dad is he just had so many different, he, he just loved music. So it wasn't like one particular thing, but, and then my dad was really into Dave Matthews, you know, hmm. growing, you know. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the start for me of like the music that I was starting to like get into as a kid. And there's a lot of local bands at that time, like Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah, that's right. Who used yeah. to play down at, they used right. to play Hilton Head like all the time. Right, right. Those right. kind of like Southern bands. Who's the um main guy again? Uh, uh something uh, Damon, Marcus. Damon Mark Rucker. Ru- Ruckus. Or, Ruckus. Something no, like that. Ruckus. Because no, he's still right. around, I think. But yeah, I don't yeah, think Hootie he, Hootie's not still around though, right? No, but he's that I think that was Hootie though. Right. I think it basically but he, was. Now he's I think more of like a country artist. Oh, uh, okay. I think he's like lives in Nashville and is doing his own like solo oh, thing. Cool. But that was like a big yeah. deal, you know. So then we had we also had like, you know, one music store mm. on Hilton Head and it was like, Yeah, that's the place, you know, and I would like ride my bike there and and at the music store there's a family on Hilton Head called the Daily Family. And they had a a band called Low Country Boil or Low Country Bluegrass Boil, something like this. Mm. And they were just kind of known as like the music family on Hilton Head, just really amazing family. I'm friends with some of the guys even today. But that's when I started kind of getting into like reggae and because I was taking lessons from one of the sons, yeah, one okay. of the daily sons. Guitar? Yeah. yeah. And that's when I really kind of started getting into it. Oh, like, so that's really, you can hear there's still such a strong reggae influence yeah, in what I mean, you write that today. Was, that was the music that really like was my thing. Yeah. I felt like as, I feel like as a youth, like you can certainly go both routes, but I feel like there was like, you either went like the Beatles route, you know, like Rolling Stones, or you like went like Bob Marley route. Right. And I definitely like went the Bob Marley route. Which also matches with Surfer. Yeah. Although like the skateboard side of it also like speaks strongly to punk. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I definitely went through my punk rock stage for like a few years, you know, and was definitely into all those bands. And I just loved music, you know, and I loved all different types of music. And so there was a thing as a kid kind of like, well, what music am I going to play? You know, but... I think it all just served its own purpose, you know, and yeah. helped me just have a wide. But when you were when you were younger, though, in your mind, is this just like this is cool? I'm having fun doing this, or are you like, mm. oh, this is my future? I never like, never ever, to be honest. Like even when I signed a record deal, was like, this is my future. It's so weird for me, and people are like, that's so weird. I'm like, I never was like, I want to be a musician. It was just like. From the time I remember, like, music was just my life, like, inseparable from life. Like, it was just, like, it was so much deeper than, like, I am a musician. It's just, like, it's a deeper thing for me. It's just, like, I don't know. It's hard for me to put into words. So there wasn't a time. I just kind of was, like, this is what I do. 
Mm. No matter what, if I do it for a living, if I don't do it for a living, if like, I just never thought about that. I was just like, this is what I do. And when it all started happening, you know, I was still so young. I mean, I signed my first big deal when I was like, I don't know, 17. You know, you're not thinking about like your future. You're just kind of like, oh, this is cool. Like, that's how I was like, this is amazing. Like, cool. But if that happened or didn't happen, it's just, I don't know, it's just a very deep-seated thing within me. Yeah, it's, it's like identity like, level. Yeah. Do you remember a time, I don't know if you like if you even still answer this, but where somebody was like, who are you or what do you do? And you're like, I'm a musician or I'm a songwriter, or, I'm a singer. Like, do you, what, what's your earliest sort of mm. recollection of like sort of saying, either speaking out loud or just right. like knowing this is actually my identity? Right. It could have been as early as like, when I went to, I went to a boarding school for music. Yeah, this was for high school, right? For high school, right. yeah. And maybe it was at that time where it's mm. kind of like, this is what I do, you know, but... Wait a minute, but you go from mm-hmm. South Carolina, because boarding school was in California, right? Yeah. All right, so you literally, you go across country to a boarding school right. for music, but right. in your mind, it's still not entirely cemented? It's just, I tell, I'm being completely honest, it was just like... Yeah, I was just like kind of going with the flow. So you're just kind of rolling with it. You're I just was like, yeah, really we'll roll, I was really rolling with it. I was just kind of like this okay, here we are now. We're at this school and uh, this is it, you know. Or this is where I am right now, you know. It was just so strange. I mean, even when I signed the record deal, you know. Right. Was, so, so how does that happen? So you're So I'm at this school, right? right? I'm at this art school. It's incredible place, like some of the best years of my life. I went there for high school for three years and it's all focused on the arts. So, and it's internationals, kids from all over the world. So anything that has to do with art is supported and anything that has to do with art, you know, is an excused absence, you know, if you're running, have a concert or whatever like this. So the school was about two hours from LA. Almost every weekend I'd, somebody would drive me down to LA and, my dad had a family friend out there. It's like my uncle. That's how close we are. Who was living in LA it was an actor. Mm. And he kind of knew some people, you know, that were in the music thing, business, whatever. And was like, you know, you should play a show. And I'm like, no way. Like, I can't play a show in LA. Like, what are you thinking? You know, but he set up a little like kind of open mic type of thing. And slowly, slowly, you know, that got some buzz. And then... I was going down every weekend, every other weekend playing and, you know, supporting this person or supporting that person. And the word just kind of spread around town. So by my senior year, I had gotten a manager, you know, and that manager was kind of shopping me around to all these different record labels. And it was just so funny because I'm growing up, you know, I'm like 17 and like, Every weekend, I, I flew to New York to meet with like Columbia. I flew to like Seattle, you know. It's just, and you, I met like all these big wigs. But like to me, I was like, well, I also have like I got to get back because I have like algebra. On I got finals. <laughs> yeah, you know. So it's just like it was just so funny. Like it was when I look back on it, I'm like, whoa. Because I'm sure you talked to your dad like through this yeah. window of time. Yeah, and like you know, like your dad being somebody where like this clearly is a part of his identity too. Right. What's as you're like, it's becoming a more serious part of your life, and now like the beat quote industry is taking right. an interest in you, and the industry's right. got a real interesting reputation. Right. Right. What are you talking to your dad about during this time? Well, my dad was extremely. My both my parents were extremely supportive. Yeah, you know because I was with my dad's like best friend he was really felt like i was in like really good hands you know which i was we just you know it was just it's hard like i'm I'm just thinking like when i'm looking back on that time again like i was in school like i was like i don't think i understood the magnitude of like what it meant to like sign a deal and like do this thing you know and my parents weren't like forcing me obviously to do that you know they i could do whatever i want they were just very supportive but they were extremely happy for me but they were also very very protective because of the industry stories and all horror stories and all stuff (laughs) and i was so young i kind of had the mentality of like i don't want to think about all this i just want to like play music which you know, I feel like it's a natural feeling at that age, but it was also very naive because 
of what transpired, you know, I really had to grow up like extremely quick. Yeah. So, you know? so share what happened. Cause you, so you yeah. end up signing a deal with Geffen. I sent, I signed a deal with Geffen. Which is, which is huge. Huge right? deal. This is like what 17 year old kid at yeah. that point. Senior signing. in high school. Right. So this um, is like, in theory, from the outside looking in, this is the dream. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, but it was weird too, because like all my friends are going to college, Yeah, you know? And I thought like, well, that's what I have to do. You know, but it's like, okay, well, I guess I, I'm not going to college. I have like this different path, like whatever. Sign this big deal, get like huge amount of money, you know, and I moved to LA by myself at like 18, whatever, and get this huge apartment on the beach, you know, and uh, I was miserable because I had no friends because I went to a boarding school. So it's not like when you like leave yeah. school, all your friends are in town. You know, I didn't have, at that age, like, I didn't know how to, like, use money, you know, like, so I wasn't, I guess, like, I didn't understand the value of money, I guess, of my own money and what it means to save and what it means, you know, this and that. So you're just kind of like spending it, you know, whatever. But I was very lonely. I remember I was smoking a lot of weed, you know, because I, what else was I going to do? I couldn't go to out to meet people because I wasn't old enough to get in anywhere. <laughs> And then I'm on this this label of all these grown-ups. You know, I'm, all I'm doing is hanging around grown-ups, you know, and they're all telling me, you know, how I should be, what I should sing, mm. you know, how I should look like, you know. And a as a young kid, it's very confusing, you know, because you want to, you know, you think, oh, I, can tr I came from a small town, you know. I'm like, oh, I can trust these people. These people care about me, you know. It was just an extremely boom, like huge wake up call because I got signed to that label. Then the president of that label at the time left the label and a new president came in and it was kind of like we had to start from scratch mm. and we had to prove ourselves to that president. And then, but that president didn't like the album we recorded. So you have to record another album. So it's like, okay, so we record another album. And then right before that album comes out, they dropped us from the label and this was over the course of like three years. You right. Know? So we had two albums that were shelved and we couldn't, they didn't let us have them, you know, they kept them. And, um, it was just a very confusing, extremely confusing time. And I had to grow up really fast and be like, okay, yeah, you can't trust anybody. You got to learn to speak f for your own truth. And it was just a very intense. What was the, was there a sort of a moment of reckoning where you're like, all right, I'm three years in, mm -hmm. I've done the work to record two albums. Right. They're never going to see the light of day. Right. And I'm running out of money. Cause the way the record right. industry works is like, you get money up front. Yeah. Well, at and least it it, you used to. Right? Well, I was getting like a <laughs> monthly allowance for right. like a year and then it stopped. Right. You know, and I had, in uh, theory, and, you have to earn that back, yeah, too. <laughs> and also, like at, by that time we were expecting to have like an album out. Yeah. So you could have some type of, you know, revenue, but we didn't, you know? And so what we just toured like nonstop for those three years. And we used the money from Geffen to go out and tour because touring is very expensive. Right. And then eventually that money ran out and it was just like, whoa. So when I'm on the road a whole bunch, which I haven't lately, I love coming back home to my own space. Even if I love where I've been, you know, I don't know. There's nothing like home. And for me, what's in that space is super important. I want it to feel not only like it kind of represents a certain aesthetic, but also like it adds something that makes me feel happy or at ease. And that's why I dig our friends at article.com and what they've created. They're inspired by mid-century modern and Scandinavian simplicity. So Article is it's an online-only furniture company that offers beautiful beautiful, curated, thoughtfully designed furniture. And by keeping everything online, they actually eliminate the cost of retail outlets and that lets them pass big savings on to you. We recently got two really cool new twilight blue chairs and an oak and marble table that we're using in the podcast studio. And I totally dig into how they kind of add like a clean line and a pop of color. They're a perfect blend of simplicity and energy. And I also love that article.com will send your entire order almost anywhere in the US and Canada for a flat rate of $49. And in-stock items often arrive in less than two weeks. 
And as a Good Life Project listener, you'll get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more when you go to article.com slash goodlife. Your discount will be automatically applied to your purchase. That's article.com forward slash goodlife or click the link in the show notes. Okay, I have a question for you. Where is the first place you look on someone's face after their eyes? Well, for many, it's actually the person's teeth. And that can be a source of either amazing confidence or self-consciousness for a lot of people. And beyond appearances, I mean, the truth is also our teeth are critically important in our health and our well-being. They can affect everything from disease to pain. And it turns out most people don't brush their teeth properly. We're supposed to brush for two minutes. But the truth is, I mean, come on, nobody actually times their toothbrushing, which is just one reason I totally love my Quip electronic toothbrush. Quip's built-in timer pulses every 30 seconds and lets me know when to switch to a different part of my mouth, then automatically pulses and turns off at two minutes. So now every time I brush, I know I'm doing it right, which I love. And with their subscription plan, which is totally awesome, you get new brush heads every three months, which is how often you're supposed to replace your brush, by the way, for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash goodlife right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at Get. Quip slash good life spelled G E T Q U I P dot com slash good life or check the link in the show notes. So you find yourself like 17, signed mm. by one of the biggest labels in the world, right. solid chunk of money, kick ass house yeah. on the beach, yeah. like recording a record, top yeah. of the world. Three yeah. years later, you're out of money. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of that apartment. You're out of the apartment. You basically you have no music to show for right, it. and your label has dropped you. Yeah, and you're alone in LA. Yeah. <laughs> well, that by that time I was um, because what happened is I had this is kind of a branch, I guess, story, but it's it's part of the whole journey. Is you know I was going to this temple, this Indian temple down in Laguna Beach, which was right. like about an hour from where I lived. And to be honest, I would go down there because they always cooked for me. <laughs> because I was 18 years old, I didn't know how to cook, you know. I was always eating out and it was just hard. And I remember when I, whenever I'd go down there, one of the monks would always cook for me. And it would just warm my heart. And I was hungry. Like, it was weird. It's just like I, I was like driving down there because he cooked such good food. And it was like a home-cooked meal. And... But I also, I started going down there and, and I started to make friends with this, with these people in this community. And I was, it's something that I was just craving because I was so lonely. So I moved out of that apartment in LA, moved down to Laguna, was living in Laguna, uh, living in a little studio apartment there. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Laguna mm -hmm. is not the least expensive place in the world. No, so it's, it's very it's expensive. Extremely expensive. Extremely place. expensive. Yeah. And, um, I had a very small little studio above a garage of this person's house. Then I really ran out of money. Like I had like a few hundred dollars to my name and I had like a rent to pay that I couldn't pay and I was freaking out. And I went to the temple one day and they said, well, you're here every day anyway. Why don't you just stay here till you get back on your feet? There's no pressure. You can come and go as you please. And it can be a week, two weeks, month, whatever you want. So I was like, okay. So I moved in and I didn't leave for like eight years. Mm. You know, I just stayed. So at that time when I got dropped and the whole thing, I was living down there in this, in this temple, <laughs> in this ashram down there, which was just it really kind of saved my life really yeah, it I, I sounds think, like it was your like at least you had that as an anchor yeah I, I think i would have been in a really bad place if i didn't have that community i would have i don't know what i would have done so you hang out there for what are you doing there for eight years well i had a teacher in high school who took me to the temple one weekend when we were up at school and i was really hungry for like i was always into like different cultures and very hungry spiritually. I think that's why I like gravitated towards reggae music so much is because it was a music that was so spiritual and was, yeah. you know, it's just like they're talking about something bigger here, you know. And I went to this temple and I, I just really gravitated to it. I gravitated to the whole vibe and the philosophies and everything. 
and just started going there like every single day. And then when I moved in, I was living there kind of as like a monk, you know, like lifestyle, you know, because we'd wake up and we'd meditate and then we'd have prayers and and then in the day you're kind of free to do what you want, study, whatever, you know. And then at night we chant again, you know, and and I just got into this routine. I got into this I was tapping into something that I had wanted to tap into for like so long, to this deeper side of myself and my relationship to God or like the spirit, whatever you want to say. And then that's when my music really started to change. How so? I felt like before when I was making the music, I was really kind of uh, searching so hard for something deeper. And when I started going to the temple, it got way more focused and got kind of a little more like devotional and music really became my tool to like explore my inner consciousness, you know, and I knew that that's why I loved music so much is because it took me into a place that was beyond words, beyond thought, beyond my rational way of thinking. And the temple life really provided this beautiful kind of like fertile ground, you know, for these songs to kind of come forth. Mm. And it was it was really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to hear you say that on a couple of levels. I've done a lot of research on some of the world's greatest creators across right. all domains. And one of the things that I was surprised to discover is that so many of them ritualize every part of their life. They ritualize and automate every single part of their life right. except for the creative process. Mm. What I realized they were doing was they were essentially taking the need to use any creative or cognitive bandwidth out of every part of their life except mm. for that window where they sat down and it was their job to create. Right. And in doing that, it allowed them to kind of go to a different place. Right. It's beautiful. It sounds like that's a lot of sort of like what you created for yourself. Yeah. I de I, because I never heard of it like that. It's really beautiful because I think like songwriting, I mean, or any type of art really... I mean, I look at music as like a channeling like experience, you know, and I'm sure a lot of different songwriters can create because you don't really know. It's like, well, how do you write a song? So you can't really like explain it. It's just like it's something that moves through you and there it is, you know, or like, how did you do that painting? You know, it's like, I don't know, you know, but I feel like there's all these different things that we do to like nourish that space within our hearts, let's say or souls, whatever. And it has to be kind of ritualized. It has to have this kind of thing, so this discipline almost, so you can whew, get into that space. And then there's comes the point when you're actually making the art or whatever, where all of it kind of drops away and you're in like a flow state. You're in this like, you know, but that flow state I feel like is due to all the nourishing things that you're doing mm. for your creativity outside of making the song or outside of you know it's interesting it makes me think about like when we go on tour right i have such a purpose i'm like okay i am waking up we're go driving to this place i'm playing a show it's like uh, you know yeah. and then you get tired and you're like oh man i can't wait to get home you know and just like rest and right when you get home we call it ptd post-tour depression because you get home and you don't have any ritual. You mm. don't have any schedule or anything. And you kind of like, you need to rest, but you kind of slump into this place of like, what am I doing with my life? Oh my God, I'm just sitting around. I'm the, And I think it's this, it shows that structure, you know, is so important for that moment of, the flow for that moment of the freedom of the music and all that stuff. And when you're on the road, it's, yeah, we wake up, we eat, we do exercise, whatever we need to do. We drive to the place, but that also needs to be in place. I think when you're home in some mm. way. And I think that's what that temple space did for me is I had this structure in my day and was doing these things that really got me into my spirit. So when the time came for a song to come through, I was feeling strong, I was feeling nourished, and it would just happen. Yeah, I love the way you put that. It's like there are different phases, you know? Yeah. 
it feels to me like what you're describing is both structure and purpose. So it's right. like when you're on tour, you have a structure and a purpose. You know, like the structure is like you, all this stuff that's the same thing. You wake up, you get in the bus, and you, know, right. you go to this place, you perform. But you also have a purpose. It's like, you know, like you are, quote, on tour. Like, right. This is the window where, like, my purpose is to share the work. Right. Right. And then when you come back, you've got the new structure mm -hmm. of the ashram. And in addition to that structure, it seems like, I don't know if you sort of, like, consciously said, well, okay, so now, like, my purpose is shifting. Now mm -hmm. it's time to, like, allow and create. Like, that's the purpose mm -hmm. around this other structure. Right. Um, but it sounds like what you're describing is, there's a window in between those two right? where like the structure and the purpose sort of temporarily drops away. And that's like the danger zone. Right. The, I think that is the danger zone. I mean, I think that's why a lot of artists, I mean, honestly, like use drugs or drink or whatever. It's just to, to get them through the danger zone mm. because there is a, a point where, you know, it's psychologically very intense to like, I mean, I'm not like extremely famous, but I can imagine somebody like, you know, whatever, the Rolling Stones or whatever, you go on stage and you play to a stadium of like 20,000 people. And then an hour later, you're alone in your hotel room, silent. Like it's an intense psychological mm. world to be thrown in between all the time, you know? Yeah, that middle ground, I think. I like calling it the danger zone. Yeah. <laughs> the danger zone. Ah, wait, Got an earworm's going to It's just, um, it's a place that I think a lot of artists, not just musicians, a lot of artists struggle with. Yeah. I think anyone who aspires to, uh, you know, really perform at their best. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we see this also with Olympians. Right. Which I didn't know until I talked to a friend of mine who was a former Olympian who then became a psychologist to help work with former Olympians because after her Olympics, right. she dropped into a deep depression. And then yeah. she said what she learned was that it's massively common. Even if you, if you show up and you like, you meddle, you do exactly right. what you want, you come back and all of a sudden the structure and the purpose are gone. Yeah. I never and thought of that. You don't know what to do about so it. so difficult. Yeah. But it's kind of like just a variation of what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a balance, you yeah. know, it's a balance and like, it's just, you know, my wife and I were just talking about this like the other day because we were, no, it was last night. We were driving back from our gig really late and we passed like the lottery, you know, like super lottery sign. It's like whatever, 150 million and my wife was talking about, I, I, I would never want that, you know, and we and it's kind of gotten to this whole, this, we got into this whole discussion about work and the kind of healthiness of work. And I don't know, it got into this really like interesting space. You know, a lot of the, the spiritual inspirations that I have, these saints and sages in India, whatever, all of them advocate work and not don't advocate oh this light your spiritual life isn't like dropping out and like going to live in a cave in the forest and like mm. sitting around they really advocate work as worship and work as like a devotional act i think that keeps your mind in a healthy place you know you keep staying engaged and having a purpose and you know it's just it's extremely important extremely important and I think, you know, there was times like I'd come back to the temple, right? Because it's a very different lifestyle than on the road, you know? Yeah. And you'd, I'd come back to the temple and my whole body, my whole mind and body would rebel against the schedule. Yeah. You know, it's like, God, I just want to chill. I want to watch Netflix and chill. <laughs> Don't want to be up at four in yeah. the morning, like yeah, chanting. You know, right? <laughs> but it was just, I did it, you know, and I'd fall into it. And then there was times when I'd come back, you know, and I'd like stay in a friend's place for like a few days because I needed like a buffer. Like a transition zone. Yeah, yeah like a transition <laughs> right. zone. I was just slumped in my own muck, mm. you know, and I thought, oh, this is what I needed, you know, like to just chill. And I just find my mind just going down. And yeah, I saw that how how important it was for me to have some type of, even if it was like, I mean, I'd wake up and like, Every morning I'd sweep the courtyard, mm. you know, something like that. Like it doesn't have to Simple. be like some crazy thing, like, or I all clean the dishes today, every lunch, you know, like just something to stay engaged because it's very easy 
Yeah. In life, really, in life. Yeah, I think, I mean, especially in the morning, like that yeah. morning routine. Yeah. doesn't have to be complex, but as long as yeah. it happens, yeah, it just kind of sets the tone for Absolutely. everything. It's like, sets the tone of being intentional yeah. from the very beginning of the day. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is an always perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. So at some point you end up, so you're in the ashram, you're creating more, you're com- right. like, and the way and what you're creating is changing in a pretty profound way. Right. But you also end up in India. Right. How's that happen? I have no freaking <laughs> idea, man. I'm from South Carolina. Right. You know? Picturing this like surfer kid, you like spend a little bit of time in Laguna and then all I of a sudden. I have no idea, man. I was like. You know, it was so funny because, like, I remember, like, before I left, like, South Carolina, you know, my I think it was, like, my uncle or somebody, like, sat me down and was like, you know, Trevor, you got to be careful out there in California. There's a lot of different cults and a lot of crazy people out there. And before you know it, you're going to, you know, be in a cult and you're going to have tattoos and dreadlocks and you know, pretty much two years later, I come back to Hilton Head with tattoos and <laughs> right, dreadlocks. Right, and living I'm in an ashram. About, and I'm talking about this <laughs> ashram that I'm living in. My parents were like, what? You know, right. but they were they were cool with it. You know, they came out and visited a bunch of times. And so, yeah, I'm staying in this ashram. It's an Indian ashram, you know, and the monks from that ashram traveled to India every single year. And I just found myself, yeah, in 2007, I was 20 years old and we went in January we left on January 1st I'll never forget and I had never been nearly that far away from the United States I mean my parents took me to like I think the farthest we went was like South America we went to Ecuador one time but I remember flying over and just like being in like our layover in like Japan you know it kind of shows the flight map you know and I was just like oh my god I'm so far away from home it was weird because like growing up, like I always, uh, India, I was like, ah, I'm not attracted to India. It just seems like weird and too much. I was always attracted to like Zen and like clean, like Japan and like, you know, mm-hmm. I, so we landed in India and I remember I got out of the plane and the smell just hits you so hard because a lot of brush fires and it's just very distinct smell. And that's a smell that I've grown to love dearly whenever I smell. I just, you know, it takes you back. And I remember I walked out of the airport and I'd never seen so many people. Like I was just blown away and I had a complete anxiety attack. And mm-hmm. I was like, I want to get back on the plane, you know? And I was like, just relax, just breathe through it, you know? And were you alone or were you? No, I was with the monks. Okay. I, I traveled with the monks there, these, right. these two monks. But I remember we got in the cab and we drove to the place we were staying. And all of a sudden, this just feeling of like, I want to say home, but that sounds so cliche. But I just felt this like, I don't know, like this just belonging, this like collective unifying energy. Like, I don't know. It was just, it was so magical for me. And... I just knew, I just knew that like, this is my place, you know, I don't know why, but this is, this is going to be my place. And that first trip, I think I was there for like three weeks and we traveled to a few different places and it just changed everything. It just changed everything for me. I I remember right, the culture shock wasn't going there. The culture shock was coming back. I remember when I landed in LA, I was so blown away, 
like it was just crazy i don't know i was just like what the heck is going on all i thought about was going back mm. as soon as i got back to the states all i thought about was how am i going to get back how am i going to get back yeah i've just been going every year since since that time almost almost every year yeah how did that influence the creative side of you yeah i i mean it really opened me up just period because it was just such an incredibly different culture and you know here in the states you know we worship materialism you know we do we worship money and power and things and here it's kind of hard to rem- sometimes hard to remember spirit you know like you're walking around and because you're confronted so much with ads and whatever it is like this you know but over there it's hard to forget the spirit it was just like everywhere you turned i mean it's so a part of their culture and life in separate even if you're in a big city you know it's just, it was that was the thing that hit me so much you're just constantly reminded of a higher power and that i think just being in that environment you know even though it was only like 3 weeks at that time it just like it just totally blew my mind heart open and um musically i think i just went so much deeper into my journey i guess of like self discovery mm-hmm. like it it really like sparked a match you know it was like i want to find out like who i am like in my truest essence not like trevor hall like who am i like i want to know like who we are like in essence cuz it just lit this fire this raging fire in me and music was my my way of sparking the fire my way of uh feeling the flame and and um it just became so much more focused i think after india mm. yeah So you come back and then mm-hmm. you're basically been going back and forth now for about, yeah. about a decade, right? Yeah, I yeah, because I was in 2007, yeah. yeah. So And music starts to become different for you. And I'm also you, you brought up your wife a couple of times. Right. Make, tell me about her. Tell me about you guys. Well, we met in India, which is so funny because we were both born in the same hospital here. <laughs> That's too funny. Greenwich Hospital. Yeah. And you have to go to India to like find yeah, her. Yeah. Um the first year i went over there in 2007 i went to my teacher's like teacher's ashram pretty much and he takes care of like underprivileged children you know street kids or mm. kids that don't come from a good background he takes them in and feeds them and clothes them and teaches them yoga and teaches them the whole like thing and so when i went over there the first time that place like really stole my heart and the kid I love kids and the kids stole my heart and I wanted to give back you know to these kids you know so when I got back to the states we really humbly just put like a cardboard box at like our merchandise table and every night I would announce oh we're raising money for some kids in India if you want to like make a donation and it wasn't much but every night you know you get a few bucks and like at the end of the tour you'd have a few hundred dollars and few hundred dollars goes a long way you know in india and over the years he was just looking after these boys these like he would take on like 10 to 12 boys young boys and it was his, his, a dream of his to start a girls ashram as well mm. and through all the donations we've made we started a girls ashram there and it's just across the river and now that's running as well and so we've been doing that for like 10 years so I would say this at shows I would and her family became they were fans and they really took to the project they took to supporting the kids and were very generous uh, for a lot of years and because of that I got her mom's email because you know like oh here's where you can send the money mm-hmm. and all this type of stuff and we just kept in touch whatever so then she writes me she says oh my daughter's going to be in India could she come and see the ashram and i said yeah absolutely but never in a million years did i think that she was actually going to come because number one india is huge i don't right. know where she's going in india and number two the ashram is not like on the tourist route i mean it's it's india like it's pretty raw i just said yeah no problem like just trying to be polite and you think that's it yeah, yeah like, i just whatever. thought that it's, was it yeah, yeah. 
And then I'm in India and her daughter emails me, my wife, future wife emails me and says, I'm in India. Long story short, can I come and see the ashram? And I remember I ignored it because I got over there and I was like, I don't want some like fan like coming to like, you know, this is my place to disappear. Right. It's like, that's not what it's about. Yeah, yeah. you know, that never happened before. So, I, and I was very protective of that place. You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, can we go? And right. I think I was just being a little overly protective. Then she emailed me like a couple weeks later. Thank God she did. And she said, oh, I'm just emailing again. And she wrote, I'm in Benares, which is only like a three-hour bus ride from our ashram. So I thought, okay. So I went and asked our Guruji. I said, is it okay? And he said, absolutely. She should come. So she took a bus and she came to the ashram for like two days. And I remember like right when she came in, our Guruji like immediately took like a liking to her, which he doesn't do with everybody. And he would make her sit next to him and he would call her my daughter, my daughter. And it was just like, okay, she's like, I don't know, she's a connection, you know, already. And that really like hit me, you know. But nothing happened. I mean, she was there for two days. You're in an ashram. It's not like a romantic right. setting, you know, you're not. She had a good time and that was it. And she left. But I didn't hear from her after. And I, I wanted to make sure she got back to her where she was staying okay and i didn't hear from her for like a few weeks and i was thinking oh well i hope hope she got back okay like whatever and then her mom emailed me and said oh my daughter got really sick after she left and that's she almost died oh that was it and she had to be evacuated out of india oh my gosh yeah she had a really bad case of e. coli i think yeah but that was kind of a blessing because I kept in touch with her mom because I felt guilty. I was like, oh, is it because she like came to our ashram? Oh, got sick? But we kept in touch, kept in touch, kept in touch. And the next time I came into town, we all linked up and how are you feeling? And that's when we really started to get to know each other. That's when I was, you know, starting to stalk her Facebook a little bit. <laughs> and like, you know, <laughs> we like, that's when you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's something else happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. And then I proposed there. We went back to India like a year later and I proposed at the ashram. It's so interesting too, because you have, I mean, I would imagine it would be easy for parents, you know, to sort of look at the life you were living. Right. And then say, okay, so this is our daughter. Who is this guy? And like, yeah. what's the life that she's potentially going to yeah. be stepping into? Yeah. And it sounds like they were actually unusually... Mm -hmm. um, open to you and sort of like what you were about and the way yeah, you were well, living. They, you know, she had been traveling a lot before that. She was oh, going okay. to this thing called Global College, which uh. is actually a, a thing from LIU, oh, okay. yeah, University. Yeah. And she was traveling the world. She would do a semester in different parts of the world. So this was a part of her. Yeah, yeah. she's a big traveler. She lived in Nepal for a year. Mm. That's kind of like her happy place like her home and nepal is a very similar culture to india so right. and they were they were very big fans of my music you know right and so i think they knew me in some regard there's a comfort level yeah there was yeah. a comfort level and and i had spoken to her mom so much yeah. that it just it was natural yeah. it was a natural and thing. she also knew the quality of your heart yeah. because of the work that you were doing yeah absolutely yeah. and the thing that was so special about them is they never treated me like i was like a musician like I don't know. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they they just treated me like a human being, which you don't always get. I just felt like whenever I was with them, I felt like, oh yeah, they're like they're like family. Yeah, that's you know, amazing. It just felt natural and yeah, just all it all was written. Yeah. It all flowed. So you begin to build a life, a new approach to music, a right. renewed sense of spirituality and a home. Right. And a partner. Right. To sort of like ride with you and co create with you and yeah. build this amazing life and, and have since built it sounds like rebuilt, not just a living, but a life around music, very much in the way that you want to def define right. it. Like you, you're out, you're traveling, you're touring a lot, you're right. creating a lot, but you're very much in control of your own music now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy that you say that. I mean, because we're at this point right now that's, you know, talking about the story, like whatever, my story, people will say, oh man, didn't that just suck going through that whole Geffen thing and whatever, major label, you know. I'm like, no, it didn't. Because I learned so much. I learned so much about 
art and music and control and the industry and it gave me so much knowledge at such an early age and I had to grow up really quick and the whole journey has forced me to really step into myself and speak up for my truth and like speak up for my art and my songs and do what I want to do you know and you know here we are 15 years later you know and I have my first independent album and we released it in our own way in a very unique way we didn't release it like a regular record and i'm in a place now where i'm like oh well i know what i don't like and i know what i like and i'm much more clear on my vision musically as a you know in my whatever i don't know company i don't know i don't consider it a company but your indie label <laughs> yeah yeah but you know i'm just so much clear on like how i want to do things in my life and that comes from all the struggle of the past 15 years you know there's a lot of like my friends you know who have been doing this for like 5 years and they're like way bigger than i am you know and it was kind of like oh god you know you can have like i've been doing this for 15 years man you know <laughs> and um you at first you start to get into like a little bit of jealousy or mm. resentment or something like this but when i step back and i get out of my ego and i look back at the whole process i i'm so grateful for the journey that i've had if it's taken long who cares you know because it's just really taught me so much not just about my art but really about myself and has really helped me grow and step into my higher self you know it's just been crazy. It's been a crazy journey. This moment, you know, in my life now, I'm still so young, but I don't think I've been like happier, you know, than like this moment. I can honestly say that. I just feel like I'm just very clear on what I want. And I'm also very aware of how big a blessing it is to be able to play music for people to show up into a city and have people actually take time out of their lives to buy a ticket and come to a place and hear you play. I mean, it's just such, it's really like such a blessing. Whereas before, I don't think like when I was touring, like I don't think I realized that as much. Mm. I thought like, oh, well, this is what's supposed to happen. Right, you know? it's like another gig on the tour, yeah. check, check the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't like that. And I realized that looking back, like I wasn't really that happy. I was just kind of like pushing, pushing, pushing. And like, and now, you know, every night, like I, you know, when we have a show, I, I look out and I'm like, I can't believe that all these people are here just to hear these songs. Like, mm. This is so, and it's so healing for me. People are like, oh, your music is, you know, so healing for my life. I'm like, you have no idea how healing it is for me to be able to be up here and serve you in this way like it's it's um and i think like it took me that whole journey it took me those 15 years to like understand that blessing and and i hope that i never forget that and i hope it just gets deeper and deeper and the gratitude gets bigger and bigger you know as we continue on yeah because no. i know that it can stop like like that yeah you know? you've seen that side of the industry yeah <laughs> yeah i've seen that side of the industry i've also seen that side of like you know, the last like few years, I've had a lot of health challenges mm. that have made me had to stop touring. Yeah. And that really put things in perspective too. Like, you know, this can just like poof, you know? So it's been, it's been really beautiful to recognize, I think that. Yeah. It makes grace. you more present. Yeah, absolutely. Nah. So as we sit here, if I offer up a term to live a good life, what mm. comes up? To live a good life. I mean, I don't know if for some reason immediately the story comes to me that I haven't really thought about in a while. When we were sitting with our Udaji in India one time and he told us the story, he said there was this uh, young boy, you know, walking on the road, you know, and he looks off and he sees this like super old man, like 80, 90, whatever, planting a seed in the ground. And, um, he thought, oh, well, how foolish that this man is planting this tree, right? He's going to die before he this tree, like, grows to bear fruit, you know? 
and he calls out to the man, hey, you know, you're so foolish. Why are you, why are you planting this tree? You know, like this, you're going to die like before you see it grow. And the old man said, my whole life I've been eating the fruit off trees that others have planted before me, you know. And the boy was extremely humbled, you know, at that point. I think there's a point in your life where you step out of your own story, you know, and you step into the collective and the blessing of serving somebody in some fashion. doesn't have to be a big thing, you know where you are completely out of yourself. And I feel like that's freedom, you know, that's living a good life, you know. That's something that, you know, I aspire to, you know, not only musically but spiritually. And it's really simple is just to understand the blessing of of serving others, you know. Most people, I think, you know, they use the word like charity, which I don't really like that word because I think it has a attitude of looking down on somebody that's less fortunate, right, than you are. I'd rather like to hear the word service, because I feel like people come before you in all different forms and shapes and situations, and it's an opportunity for you to serve. So really, you are indebted to that person that you're serving you know, because they're bestowing that blessing upon you. Because as you get older, you know, you realize like how hard it is to find an opportunity to serve. It's kind of weird, you know. So living a good life is, for me, I think, getting out of my own story, getting out of my own story, and really just looking on another person as yeah, an opportunity to serve in whatever capacity. Mm. If it's like cooking a meal, if it's like giving somebody a hug, you know, it doesn't have to be like feeding like thousands of people, you know, or if it's just listening, you know, like one of my best friends in high school, my roommate, my senior year, his name is Adrian. He's just a really amazing kid, great guy. His dad was like this Buddhist, like, saint really like he was like an amazing guy but whenever i'd come back into the dorm room and like vent you know he would listen to me and he wouldn't say anything to me but i knew with every bone in my body that he was a hundred percent listening to what i was saying neutrally from a neutral place and that was all the healing that i needed you know it could just be listening to somebody offering your space you know Mm. So, yeah, that's the good life to me. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> get get out of your own story. So, um, so we're very fortunate. Not only are you sitting mm-hmm. across from me in our studio, but two feet from you on the floor is your guitar. Yes. <laughs> I brought the axe. And I compel you to uh, play a song. Yes. To, uh, before we leave. Absolutely. Got me 
feeling strong and tall Laughing at the play of life yeah. Gifting me a brand new sight The war between right and wrong I'm putting it all in song And trust that I do my best Sunshine through my window She coming home tomorrow It's my choice to be joyful I'm giving up our sorrow now. And this is my story And this is my Sunshine through my window She'll call me home tomorrow It's my choice to be joyful I'm giving up our sorrow And this is my story And this is my So if you're still listening, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just completely love that you enjoyed this episode so much that you've listened until now. You're an awesome human being. And while we're wrapping things up, might as well um, share a quick shout out to our super cool brand partners. If you love the show, and I'm guessing you do because you're still here, please support them. They help make the podcast possible. Check out the links in today's show notes. And don't forget also your spot at this year's Camp GLP. As we recently announced, this will be our final year. We're expecting about 400 amazing humans from all around the world. It's going to be more epic than ever. And if you've been waiting, be sure to register soon. You can find that link at goodlifeproject.com slash camp today or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.